back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutional government. I'm Adam White. Public schools teach their students many things, not simply in terms of tests and homework. The Supreme Court put it best in a 1986 case called Bethel School District versus Frazier. Quote, the process of educating our youth for citizenship in public schools is not confined to books, the curriculum, and the civics class. Schools must teach by example the shared values of a civilized social order. Consciously or otherwise, teachers, and indeed the older students, demonstrate the appropriate form of civil discourse and political expression by their conduct and deportment in and out of class. Inescapably, like parents, they are role models. End quote. Well, what sorts of roles are the schools modeling today? Not just the high schools, but also universities, and not just public schools, but private ones as well. What sorts of citizens are we forming in our elementary schools, our high schools, and our universities? For anyone familiar with the state of higher education, after a decade of battles over legal and cultural attacks on free speech and free inquiry, this question is ominous. As we already see clear evidence, the universities are indeed forming a particular kind of American public, and not necessarily for the better. How should we understand this, and what can be done about it? To answer this, I'm pleased to be joined today by two people who are deeply involved in these debates. First, we'll hear from Stuart Taylor, a longtime journalist covering the Supreme Court for the New York Times, The Atlantic, the National Journal, among others. Stuart recently co-founded Princetonians for Free Speech, an organization founded by Princeton alumni to restore values of free speech on that campus. Stuart, welcome. Nice to be with you, Adam. And then we'll hear from Nicole Neely, a policy expert who helped lead and manage organizations like the Independent Women's Forum and the Cato Institute. She's now executive director of Speech First, an organization founded to actively defend free speech on campus through targeted litigation. Nicole, welcome. Thanks for having me. And I'll just note here that for Speech First, I'm hardly a neutral observer. I served on its original board of directors until the end of last year, and I'm still a, a fan of that organization and also of Stewart's organization. So with that, perhaps it's best to start with a specific example of Princeton, and then we'll move back to the issue of campus speech more broadly. Stuart, could you say a few words about what's happening at Princeton and what your organization is attempting to do in response? Sure. To begin very generally, the tide is running against the freedoms of speech and thought at Princeton and at almost, like almost all selective colleges. I don't think that's a secret. It greatly alarms me, and it has greatly alarmed me for years. But my classmate, Ed Yingling, and I founded Princetonians for Free Speech a few months ago because of some particular stuff that we learned was going on at Princeton. I'd never been an activist before. I've been a more observer. But And I should say, for starters, that Princeton has very good formal rules protecting free speech of faculty and students. So you might say, what's the problem? In faculty, in 2015, the faculty adopted as a regulation the so-called Chicago principles, which originated at the University of Chicago in 2014. These principles provide very broad protections for free speech at private as well as public universities. If I, you know, if I, I wish I'd written them myself. There's nothing much about them that I would change. They have narrow exceptions for speech that violates the law, that falsely defames individuals that constitutes a genuine threat or harassment or that unjustifiably invades privacy, but these are not very serious restraints on the kind of speech that most civilized people would want to engage in. They're much like the rules that the U.S. Supreme Court has found to be required by the First Amendment against government censorship and restrictions. 
But the best rules in the world cannot themselves guarantee true freedom of speech and thought. First, those freedoms are not always fairly enforced by the university. And I'll come to that later. If, if I forget, you can bring me back to it. And we've noticed a double standard favoring progressive students and faculty in some of the Princeton administration's actions. Second, and probably more important, the climate of opinion on campus, perhaps, perhaps even more among students than among the very progressive faculty, is that many students say they're afraid to be, of being harassed on social media or face-to-face, -face, ostracized, canceled, or worse, if they say anything that offends the political sensibilities of the activist groups, progressive activist groups that dominate campus debate at Princeton and almost everywhere else. This past summer, Princeton was roiled by politically charged debates about the right to express individual views on issues of race, gender, and history in particular. More than 300 faculty and staff signed a letter to the administration making numerous demands to fight alleged systemic racism at Princeton and to fight it in large part by censoring speech that offended the political preferences of the left. This followed a list of demands sent to the Princeton administrations by more than 250 students. In both cases, some of the demands are in direct conflict with the rights to free speech and academic freedom. When a Princeton professor wrote an article in opposition to the faculty letter and used probably sharper language than he should have, he was personally attacked and vilified by other faculty and students, by people he had served with in the classics department for years, turned on him. His letter is, you know, and this is the most, probably the best teacher Princeton has had in a generation or two. But that didn't do him any good. He was, his letter was initially condemned by the Princeton administration, President Eisgruber, which for a time threatened possible discipline, despite the fact that the professor views were clearly protected by the Chicago principles. When, this, when a small group of undergraduates signed a perfectly civil letter in opposition to the above mentioned list of demands, some of that small group were attacked on social media by other students as being racists and Nazis fascists. What prompted us to create Princetonians for free speech was learning about how viciously one particular sophomore was being harassed for opposing this list of demands. More broadly, surveys show that many university students nationally do not understand the significance of free speech. They actually oppose it. Also, I've been told by students at Princeton that of their classmates who care about politics, and I guess there are a lot of them who don't, maybe 40%, I was told, the vast majority oppose free speech and think of it as designed to protect racists and other conservatives who want to say terrible things, which they denounce as hate speech. Students also come under great pressure from peers not simply to self-censor any conservative or moderate views, but also to voice affirmative support for progressive demands. As one fellow supporter of free speech said to me after we'd both been immersed in this for a while, Princeton is unsafe for conservatives and for moderates. And I'm afraid that's sort of the way it is. Talking to students and faculty, that's the impression I have. There are some hopeful signs. They don't make me optimistic, but they keep me going. I'll mention them without getting into them. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a great new organization. The James Madison Program at Princeton is an oasis of, you know, of kind of open thinking at a university that's getting more and more closed-minded. There's a great tag team of Robbie George and Cornell West, both professors at Princeton who come from the left and the right poles of the political spectrum, but who both believe in free speech. And they go around the country 
putting on kind of a show. One of them is six feet, seven inches tall and black, and the other one is five feet, three inches tall and white, which makes the show all the more interesting, but they're both brilliant. And so there, there are some, some signs of hope out there, but right now it's hard to be optimistic for me. Stuart, I know this is your maybe your first venture into activism. Like you said, for a long time, you've been an observer. I don't know how closely you've been observing over recent years, but the problems that you now see at Princeton and that have spurred you to, to spring into action, do you have any sense of, of how they came about at Princeton, where it came from, how long the situation has been this dire? Or is it one of these things where things were just sort of under the radar until the problems exploded into public view recently? Well, as as around the country, I think, you know, the you know, the killings of unarmed black people and so forth, all the things that got the country so riled up last summer, got the campuses riled up, too, even though people weren't there. And so that kind of that kind of exposed a lot of the fault lines that were already there. But as as, as people have written in some very good books, you know, it used to be that those of us who worried about free speech and free thought were worried about far left professors indoctrinating their students. Now, the far left professors are afraid of the students, as are the near left professors and the conservative professors, because the students, and having been pre-indoctrinated in high school, as one professor told me, arrive in already on fire with indignation at the establishment. And therefore, if any professor or student says something that ticks them off, they attack. That is, I think, what has changed over over the past 10 or 15 years. So, you know, although like all change, it's been somewhat gradual. And now there are a lot of organizations that have been involved in these fights. Speaking of FIRE, there is the organization named FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, which has been involved in these things for quite some time. And you mentioned the brand new Academic Freedom Alliance, which was co-founded by, I think it was co-founded by Professor Keith Whittington previous guest on this podcast. One of the other organizations that's involved in this quite a lot, involved quite a lot in this issue and, and very recently, is Speech First, the aforementioned nonprofit that I was involved in that litigates cases against public universities. And we'll get to the public-private distinction in, in a little while, both as a matter of law and just as a matter of, of what these institutions exist to do. But Nikki, why don't you join the conversation and, and tell us about what, what Speech First is and, and what it's been involved in. Sure. So yeah, Speech First is about three years old. We launched in February 2018, and we are structured a little bit differently than FIRE or Alliance Defending Freedom or some of the other groups that have litigated in this space because we're a membership association. So when we sue schools, it's Speech First versus a school instead of being, say, Adam White versus the University of Iowa. We did that for two reasons. Number one- Nikki, I can't um, imagine what would, it's hard to imagine what could ever bring me to to sue my beloved alma mater of the University of Iowa. But right, this is strictly from, for the sake of hypotheticals. from a rotten football team, who knows? I mean, okay. um, but when we sue as a membership association, then we're able to protect students' anonymity, which we have found is a paramount concern to a lot of them because they fear, they credibly fear disciplinary repercussions. And I think it just, it makes a lot of sense, right? You know, at the end of the day, you want your university to give you a diploma. And so it makes it really weird when you file a federal lawsuit against them. But also it, it strategically helps us with standing. If an individual student sues their school, I mean, best case scenario, it's the first, you know, it's first semester freshman, then you have four years, maybe five if they're a little bit slow. But if they take much longer than that, then, you know, then the case will, will, will time out and the student graduates, they're kicked out, they transfer, then the harm has gone away, it's moot. And so you're not able to really get at some of these very kind of 
broad thorny issues. You can certainly, you can litigate over something like a free speech zone or a security fee, which while bad, I actually don't think is the biggest threat to free speech on campus right now. What worries me more than anything else is what Stuart had alluded to, this chilling of discourse on campus. Students are terrified both of their administrations as well as their peers. And so they just refrain from discussing controversial topics altogether. And so you look at how expensive college is. You're paying $50,000, dollars $70,000 a year to not raise questions, write the papers you want, or engage in any kind of spirited debate. Then why the heck are you there in the first place? And so what Speech First does is we want to remove those disciplinary administrative burdens. We want to get the bad policies off the books. And so students are able, they, they feel comfortable discussing topics at least. I remember some free speech things coming up. Even when I was in law school 20 years ago, a classmate of mine, my first year in law school, he published some outlines online that used some really, really offensive language. And, and there was calls to discipline him. And then there was debates about speech codes and that sort of thing. But what strikes me about the current debates is, and Nikki, you just alluded to this, it's not just sort of free speech in general, right? It's, not, it's, it's nothing quite that straightforward. It's that the value of speech of, of free speech on campus is threatened by process, by, by not just, there's, of course, the cultural side of things, but just on the, the sort of quasi-legal side of things. It's these procedures. It's these, these boards. We sometimes call them, half-jokingly call them truth commissions. But it's, it's this infrastructure that's building up on campus to keep an eye on what people are saying and, and sometimes punish them for things they've said. And if nothing else, oftentimes, the process itself is, the, is a sort of punishment that right. creates that chilling effect. Why don't you describe some of the things, maybe use one of your lawsuits as a specific example to, to sort of describe exactly what sort of campus infrastructure we're talking about. Sure. So the two main programs we, that we've gone after have been bias response teams and just overbroad speech codes. And both of them, to me, are very insidious because they're really vague. And that's actually the grounds under which we challenge them on First and 14th Amendment grounds. They're overbroad and they're vague. Students don't know what they can get in trouble for because a speech code might ban offensive speech, hateful language. Well, who is defining that? That's not in the Constitution. It's left up to an administrator to decide what's hateful, what's unwelcome, or bias response teams. Same thing, where students are encouraged to report on each other, often through a portal that's on the university website. And in, on many campuses, they can do so anonymously. So if I can go on and I can say, I heard Stuart say this awful thing. I don't have to have my name attached to it. Those programs are very easily weaponized. Students make spurious accusations against each other. When we sued the University of Michigan in 2018, their bias response team website actually said the most important indication of bias is your own feelings. And so students are put in this position where they must tailor their language to how the most sensitive student on campus might interpret their remarks. You know, there's no mens rea, there's no intentionality. And even frankly, if I meant to hurt Stuart's feelings, that's okay, because that's not constitutionally prohibited. Again, these being public university campuses, that kind of language is allowed. And so for students to try and kind of grant themselves this broad discretionary power to pick winners and losers to us is absolutely unacceptable. So far, Speech First has sued the University of Illinois. That was settled. Texas, University of Texas, that was settled. University of Michigan, settled. Iowa State, not the University of Iowa, but those folks out west in Ames. Iowa State sued, and that's settled. And now one more case, the University of South Central Florida. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm wrong here, but those are all public universities, right? What, Correct. How to, and, and of course, Princeton, which we'll get back to in just a second, is as far as I can tell, it's not a public university. Nikki, you've, why is it that you focused exclusively on public universities? And is that simply a matter of, of legal difference? Or is there a difference in principle between what happens at a public university versus what happens at a private university? 
Yeah, we we sue public universities because they're they're state actors, right? They receive federal funding, state funding. They must uphold the Constitution. Full stop. The end. I know there's a spirited debate on the right in education policy circles over whether private universities, you know, because they receive federal funding through other methods, Pell Grants, et cetera, should they be exposed to this? We just wanted to go just to, you know, what are these, these big targets, these big flagship universities in their states that people are so proud of, but that also are frequently, they're, they're really, really bad actors. And so we just, you know, it's, it's not that it's low hanging fruit because they are objectively doing really terrible things to their students, which makes me indignant, but it's kind of, I think the, the tidiest thing to do as well. Well, Stuart, then if I look at Princeton, it's it's not a state actor. Yeah, it, gets, it does get state funding and so on, federal funding, but and other subsidies, I suppose. But it's not a state actor. It's a private institution. We're a nation full of private organizations and private institutions that can decide, you know, for themselves largely what, what they want to do and who they want to be with. Why can't an old private institution like Princeton or a new one that's founded tomorrow decide what values it wants to inculcate, and then sort of take whatever action it sees fit within the context of its own private walls to, to, to inculcate those values? Well, they can, use, they can often get away with it. We've seen that. And of course, Princeton as a private university, it's also a lot smaller than, say, the University of Iowa, which sort of changes the context of things. It's less a matter of rules all over the campus and more a matter of climate of opinion and so forth. You know, there, there isn't, as far as I know, any bias response teams at Princeton, for example. And it's harder to sue them because you don't have, you can't say, oh, you're violating the First Amendment. They don't, they don't have to obey the First Amendment, but they do have their own rules and they're supposed to obey their own rules. And you can sue them when they violate their own rules for breach of contract or something like that. They haven't had, really had any cases like that out of Princeton, I think. It's, it's, a, it's a tough case to win. And litigation has not been resorted to much. And the, most of the problems at Princeton, as I said earlier, are not anything the university is doing. It's things that maybe individual professors are doing, but more, more things that students are doing to other students or to the professors. And you can't really get much of a lawsuit going out of that sort of thing. That's why Princetonians for Free Speech is not really in the lawsuit business. We're early, but we're in the trying to change the climate of opinion business. And also, one thing that we do, and that probably the outfit I remember mentioned earlier, forgetting their name, the other interest, supporting, offering sort of moral support and legal support, we're not doing this, but another group is, to the victims of the cancel culture. You know, there's a professor at Princeton, for example, who has been viciously maligned by the campus newspaper, the Daily Princetonian, which is a very woke organization. He's the one I mentioned to earlier who used a somewhat indiscreet word when he was in a magazine article last summer denouncing some of the faculty demands. You know, it wasn't, he didn't say anything racist, but he got accused of saying something racist. And, and that accusation took off. So the Daily Princetonian went into a seven-month in-depth investigation of every facet of his life looking for anything they could use against him. And they found something. It developed that he had had a sexual relationship with one of his students, which is against the rules. And that was about 15 years ago. One factual relationship 15 years ago, the, the Daily Princetonian decides, gosh, here's a guy who said something we don't like about a racial matter. So what do we do? Let's dig for dirt. There was a rumor that he you know, hung out sometimes with female undergraduates. Let's get this guy. 
and they got him in the sense of of ruining his life to a large extent, although they haven't been able, although the university has not acted against him. The university knew about this event, disciplined him very privately, very secretly, gave him a year without pay, and then brought him back. There was no sense that he was a repeat offender or anything like that. But that's just an example of how you get to be, you know, people get targeted. And one one thing we try to do is we go to the support of people like that. We've written a bunch of articles in Princetonians for free speech, attacking the daily Princetonians' conduct in this matter, and we're ready to do it again. We're still too small for that to hurt them much, but we're working on it. Nikki, speaking of targeting, when, when you all file a lawsuit, you filed a few so far. Have there been instances of any of your, your members on campus or any anonymous plaintiffs in your cases being targeted or, or even people just trying to seek out who might be the unnamed students so that they can be targeted? Or, or have you, has, has that not come up yet? It has not come up because, and, and universities do ask, University of Michigan did say, well, we can assure students A, B, and C that they can say whatever they want and they'll be okay, which is right. I mean, that's how universities act, right? We'll just create this little special carve out. But I think universities know that if we were to get into discovery and they were to try and unmask our students, that they have quite a lot of dirty laundry that we would be able to pull out. And so it's kind of mutually assured destruction. So fortunately not. Although, you know, it was a concern definitely when we sued the University of Texas, there's a really active Antifa chapter there. And they have been going after students there for years. I mean, trying to get them fired, doxing them, personal information. I talked to undergrad students who said, well, you know, the first time I was doxed by Antifa, you know, it's, it's really scary, but I've been helping some of the freshmen figure out how to change their emails. And I thought, so this is not the kind of thing that an 18-year-old should know how to do. You should be trying to get a fake ID, not trying to, you know, figure out how to prevent like some armed wackadoos in Austin from like showing up at your doorstep. You know, on, on the discovery side of things with these lawsuits, I'll just note that your cases have all been litigated, you know, by by the law firm of Constable and McCarthy, the prominent boutique litigation firm. They've been speech first lawyers. And in separate litigation they've handled against Harvard University with the big affirmative action case. That litigation produced discovery on, you know, the, the documentation of Harvard's decision-making process for an affirmative action at the university. And while Harvard's won its cases so far, I guess it's probably headed in the general direction of the Supreme Court now. A lot of the things that came out of the, the university in terms of the way that admissions officers were talking about students, talking about Asian American students in general, was pretty ugly stuff. And I agree with you that the schools would be wise to be careful about what they say, lest you guys get the ability to dig into what might be said behind the scenes. But I digress. We'll talk a lot about the issue of campus speech in general, but I do want to focus at least a little bit longer on your specific projects and and programs. I just want to tell our listeners, by the way, you know, we'll never be able to do full justice to either organization in an hour long podcast, but they both have websites, princetoniansforfreespeech.com speechfirst.org, both filled with information about their activities and also about general principles of, of free speech and, and, and all that. But in setting up your institute, your organizations, or maybe Stuart in setting up Princetonians for free speech, Nikki in launching your first few lawsuits, what have been the greatest challenges along the way, just in terms of your interactions with the universities? Stuart, maybe we'll start with you. I know you announced the creation of Princetonians for free speech with a, a public letter Maybe I can't recall. Maybe it was in the Daily Princetonian. I can't recall. But what sort of response have you engendered, either for better or for worse? We haven't really dealt with the university at all, except that I've written some critical things about President Eisgruber's handling of free speech and other matters. But 
one delicate thing about it is the people who know what what goes on at Princeton say that Ice Gruber is better on free speech than any replacement we can ever imagine coming for him. So I don't want to get, you know, I actually sent Ice Gruber a letter saying, you know, maybe we can be helpful to you all. We want to protect free speech. You supposedly want to protect free speech. There wasn't, any, you know, and he sent back a polite letter, but there wasn't much to work on. Our early effort is to influence public opinion, starting with alumni, because the alumni are the most pro-free speech body that has a large say about what goes on in the universities. You know, if you're going to try and get a student or a faculty organization to support free speech, it's, it's, it's an uphill battle. When you're trying to get alumni, we've, we've gotten a lot of alumni support, and we're hoping to get more. And we hope that that will give us eventually enough influence so that if we're coming to the defense of somebody like this professor I talked about, it does them some good and it influences the university. And if we're attacking a malefactor, as we were attacking the Daily Princetonian, you know, I don't think they probably laughed it off. You know, who the hell are these guys? Why should we worry about what they think? We're hoping that in a year or two, they'll have more reason to worry about what we think. But the day in, day out work, other than coming to the defense of people who are being attacked, which isn't, which isn't a weekly or a monthly thing, it happens once in a while, is trying to have the, use the website as a way to inform people, particularly alumni, about what's actually going on on campus. Because I think most people don't have the foggiest idea how bad things are. And, and a lot of them, particularly at Princeton, alumni are very affectionate about Princeton, people who know that things are going badly there, still want to give money <laughs> for their 50th reunion campaign to the university that's doing the bad things because they have these warm feelings about it. We're trying to affect that climate of opinion. We're trying to kind of mobilize initially alumni, but eventually supportive students and faculty to you know, work kind of aggressively in favor of free speech largely on the public opinion front. We're not filing lawsuits. Somebody may file a lawsuit someday, but that's not where the business we're in. And Nikki, in setting up Speech First, I mean, what really set the organization apart was, as you mentioned, creating it as a membership organization, specifically so that litigation could endure on these issues, even though these students are only there for three or four or five years. I'd be curious, is, is just the building up of membership on campuses, has that been the biggest challenge for you or, or what other challenges a speech first had to overcome in, in being able to, to play this role in, in, the, in this crucial debate? Yeah, no, I, we, right now, I mean, we're overwhelmed with people who want help. It's just a lot of students' problems are not necessarily litigatable. You know, a lot of it is, yeah, it's, it's peer pressure. I mean, I can't change through litigation culture on campus. Students who want to rat each other out, who demand punishment because their feelings were hurt. But I do, I, I agree so much with, with Stuart about, you know, the PR component of this is so important because we have found that, you know, we, we litigate our cases obviously in court, but also, you know, the court of public opinion is as important, if not more so. When we sued the University of Michigan, we spoke to their general counsel after we, we sued and he said, you know, I really would have appreciated a heads up. I didn't like learning about my case from the Wall Street Journal. And I think, you know, there's a lot of these schools have gotten so used to getting endless nasty grams and ignoring them or kind of like making a little change on the side just to make somebody go away. And, you know, those days are done. You don't get a heads up. Your heads up is the Constitution. And I thought Michigan actually was a great case because they were one of the original political correctness cases that was brought in the 80s. It was Doe v. Michigan in 89. 
where they were smacked down 30 years later. Here we are. Why do you as a state actor get this undue deference that you obviously don't deserve when people's backs are turned? You're going to backslide. No, those days are over. And even when we sued the University of Illinois, when we were working on our settlement negotiations with them earlier this year, one of the things, one of the sticking points for them, weirdly enough, was that they didn't want us to publicize our settlement. They said, we've seen how you know, your client characterizes these in the media. If they had just kept their mouth shut, signed the thing the week of the inauguration, nobody would have known. But they had to die on this weird hill as a state actor trying to silence a First Amendment group. Like, did you think we were going to back down on this? We did not. And, you know, it was a whole new news cycle. So they were just it was penny wise and pound foolish. So that public pressure really does play a big part, because I think, Stuart, you're right. In terms of alumni caring, people have these warm, fuzzy feelings. I had a great time going to football games. Nobody knows what's going on. And often alumni associations are captured entities of these universities. Oh, yeah. Mark Pulliam created like a kind of insurgent breakaway University of Texas alumni group called Misrule, something University of Texas. He has thousands of people who are outraged to know what is actually taking place on campus, how resources are actually being spent. The school with $24 billion in endowment is still, you know, going hand in hand to alumni saying, can you help us with students who had to lose power during the blackouts in January? What are you doing? I mean, come on, guys. And just to be clear here, the pounding sound in the the background is not the University of Michigan coming for Nikki. She's just having a little work done on her house. Stuart, Nikki, you've both illustrated that one of the big problems that you're you're confronting is the official rules of these institutions. I think you both made clear that in, in many ways, the greater challenge is just the culture, the environment. It's not the rules, but it's just the everything else that implicitly surrounds the students and the faculty. That sounds pretty hopeless to me. I don't know how an organization could begin to combat those things. Suing to change a rule or, or creating an institution to change a rule That seems pretty straightforward to me, but how do we even begin to grapple with the cultural issue that's turbocharging these problems? It's an uphill battle. I read an article, I think it was by Tevi Troy recently, that reminded me of some things I'd almost forgotten that happened in the late late 20th century. I think you mentioned the University of Michigan lawsuit on speech codes and so forth. Well, there was a time when the political correctness movement, as it was called, was becoming a huge monster on campuses, and a lot of us were worried about it. And then some very smart conservatives wrote books exposing how bad it was. Dinesh D'Souza, who was very smart then, I'm not sure about now. Alan Bloom and a couple of others wrote very good books. Some Canadians got on camera making fun of the political correctness. And after a while, early 20, early 21st century, political correctness had become a laughing stock. It had become a joke. We're hoping to do that to wokeness. <laughs> and we're on our way to succeeding in some circles, except unfortunately, it's conservative circles we're succeeding in. But I think the history of the rise and fall and rise again, but let's stick with the fall for now of the political correctness movement gives some basis for thinking, well, maybe public opinion really can do something to blunt these threats. And that's what, that's what I'm hoping for. And by the way, I, th- I think the article you're referring to by Tevi Troy, who also is a, a repeat guest on the show here, it's titled How to Defend Free Speech. And it's in the brand new spring 2021 issue of National Affairs. Terrific article. It's the most hopeful article I've read in a, in a while on this subject. 
Nikki, any thoughts on the the broader cultural battle? I mean, you you inter- interact with students as you've mentioned. You, so much of your job is is dealing with real students on campus, grappling with these things. And and what do you take away from those conversations in, in with respect to the cultural fight? Yeah, I mean, I think about that line from GI Joe, the old commercial, the old cartoons. Knowing is half the battle. Yeah, I think there are a lot of students who just they've never received a proper civics education. The time by the time you get to college, you know, this is the first time you've been told, you know. Free speech and First Amendment is why you like Richard Spencer could come to campus. Like, yeah, of course, somebody's going to hate it. I actually I think Princeton has done a surprisingly good job, obviously not good enough. But I remember last year they gave out Keith Whittington's book about free speech to all incoming freshmen. And then they, they integrated that into their incoming freshman curriculum. I think that's a really important thing that there's the reason this is what the text in. But here's why we believe it, that the First Amendment and free speech has been used by disenfranchised minorities throughout history to persuade others. I mean defeat Jim Crow to for achieve women's suffrage. Those are great, amazing things. And so I think once students actually know a little bit more about that, that, you know, that's really important because at the end of the day, we should want to bring people to our side, not just beat them over the head and kind of terrify them into silence. That's not actually the right way to win an argument. And so I think, you know, I would, I would like to give students the benefit of the doubt that like, you know, they are winnable, although, you know, you know, some days are better than others. His book is great. And it was Ice Gruber. They have something called a pre-read at Princeton. Everybody has sent the book to please read this. You don't have to read it, but please read it. And it was just the right thing people needed. Unfortunately, it was going into a climate where the people weren't that receptive to it. Keith Whittington, you mentioned earlier, is a leader of the Academic Freedom Alliance, which is worth talking about a little bit because they've they've kind of got the same attitude Princetonians for Free Speech has, but they have a lot more clout because they have a lot more money, and because they have about 200 professors around the country, many very prominent, many left, liberal and moderate. They had to work at that, finding liberal and moderate professors, but they found them, Keith Whittington, Robbie George, and other leaders of this operation. And so they have a very powerful group of people. Their legal advisor group includes Floyd Abrams, the, probably the greatest free speech lawyer of the 20th century in terms of litigators and a number of other very, very prominent First Amendment, prominent lawyers. I'm not remembering all the names, but they're, they're a powerful group. And what they sell themselves as is anybody, any faculty member anywhere in the country who's being you know, hurt by his university or by anyone else in a way that needs moral support, will come, will give you moral support. If you need to sue somebody and you need the money to do it, We've got the money. That gets people's attention. That gets the attention of university administrations, just the way Nikki's work gets the attention of the universities. But when you've got a powerful group of professors with a powerful group of lawyers saying, we're just lying and wait for you, universities, you know, if you make any move that hurts somebody you want to protect, we're going to come at you. That's, that's healthy. Something Nikki said a moment ago really struck me. We're talking about persuasion and, and how. Free speech was necessary for people to persuade their political opponents or adversaries about the justice of their cause. And that's that's very true. But it seems to me, I guess maybe that's why we have these arguments like this on, about campus speech is that persuasion is sort of out of fashion, right? You see this, it's at the heart of the arguments over social media and the, and the need for social media to do more content moderation and so on. More and more arguments about free speech strike me as arguments about, about power. Or argument, I make that, I guess, arguments about harmful speech are, are arguments about power. And the idea being that 
that words really aren't about persuasion anymore. It's about an assertion of power and the power needed to stop those assertions of power. And people don't believe so much in the possibility of persuasion so much as the power of, or the possibility of using power to stop speakers they don't like from saying what they're going to say. Am I, am I being too dire here? Or is that, is, does that, does that make sense at all? To, to no, it you? totally makes sense. A couple of years ago, it was, we used to hear speeches, violence that, you know, yeah. my words, I say something that hurts your feelings. It raises your blood pressure and your pulse and creates stress and stress leads to heart attacks. And so, you know, obviously I've just, you are justified then in punching me in the face to shut down my speech that is hurting you. Or this past summer, we actually heard that kind of morph into silence is violence. So if you and I disagree with each other, I can't even keep my mouth shut. I have to affirmatively parrot things that I disagree with in order to be a good person. And so it's, you know, we're not being forced, we're being compelled to say things, which is a very weird manifestation of, you know, how to restore the power dynamic between people. Yeah, you remind me of a recent case, and you probably read about it. We put it on our website. A Georgetown law adjunct law professor was talking to a colleague and complained. She thought it was a private conversation, but unbeknownst to her, it was being picked up by Zoom about the performance of her Black students. And she was complaining, lamenting as though this is too bad. She wasn't kind of being critical of them, that they tended not to do as well as the other students in class, which isn't that surprising when you know about the, you know, the gaps and the racial gaps and entering credentials. And so they fired her. It got, somebody got a hold of the Zoom thing and, you know, it got around and they fired her. And they also went after the guy she was talking to because he just sat there and listened to her, period. Now they may fire him. I'm not sure where his case stands now. But, you know, it's an example of, of how, how far things have gone. A moment ago, I was comparing your lawsuits, Nikki, to the, the affirmative action lawsuit at Harvard. It occurs to me that the debates we're having about speech on campus, in addition to diversity on campus in general, they're all happening at the same time as the debates surrounding Title IX, discrimination on campus, protection against discrimination, and all that. What, what connections do you see between the issues you're working on and those separate issues of, of Title IX and, and campus regulation in general? We just filed an amicus brief, actually, in support of the petition that Students for Fair Admissions has filed in Harvard, because one of the justifications that was used in the Grutter case was that you know, these, these preferences would lead to a more robust exchange of ideas. And I mean, looking at polling, it's very questionable whether there is greater diversity of thought and idea on campus now than there was before. Frankly, I'm not sure if things are much better or if they're a lot worse now and people are more terrified. So I think that's interesting. Same thing with Title IX. Speech First has gotten involved in defending the Trump administration's Title IX rules. We filed motions to intervene in some of the litigation that was brought against the, the government because a lot of the Title IX overreach from the Obama years was used, frankly, by Obama administration, encouraged schools to infringe upon students' free speech rights in the name of you know, preventing sexual harassment. Pretty sure the Constitution doesn't allow those kinds of exceptions or carve-outs. And the fact that it was done in an administratively improper way was you know, kind of insult to injury. Stuart, you've written on related issues over the years. You, you wrote a couple of books on what was happening on campus, on these other issues. How, how does this tie into your work on free speech? I've compartmentalized what I'm doing. I've been writing a lot about the campus rape frenzy, which was the t- title of my last book, uh, co-authored with Casey Johnson. 
and as Nikki says, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in that world. Partly saying an off-color joke now can get a professor or a student in trouble for sexual harassment. It doesn't have to have anything to do with touching anybody or asking for sex, talking about sex. And I've written a, a fair amount about those kinds of cases, but also there's a lot of kind of sex cases that do lead to real lawsuits. There have been hundreds of real lawsuits and a majority of them won by the men who were being punished as sexual assaulters when the evidence suggested they didn't do it or what they did do was not sexual assault. And so that's a whole huge compartment of what's going on on campuses. And it is related to the free speech compartment because they kind of both play through the sexual harassment vocabulary. But the kind of free speech issues I, the Princetonians for Free Speech has been dealing with, we haven't gotten any into any of the sexual harassment stuff, in part because there hasn't been that much of that activity, at least not that we know about. You know, there may be more going on behind the scenes to talk about. And also, frankly, we're trying to get people who believe in free speech on our side. And if writing a lot about the sex wars on campus offends a lot of people we want on our side who might otherwise be in favor of free speech, we don't want to go out of our way to defend to offend them. So I may offend them in my books, but not at Cap Camp, Camp Princetonians for free speech. Maybe we'll end on this. Thinking about speech and the other values that universities are supposed to inculcate. I mean, universities have never been total free speech zones. Schools never have, especially the elementary schools and high schools. The case, the Supreme Court case from 86 that I quoted at the beginning about schools teaching more than just what's in the textbooks, Bethel School District against Frazier. In that case, the Supreme Court ruled that the school didn't violate the First Amendment by punishing a student who gave a, a graduation speech full of, of sexual innuendo, right? The, upshot of that case in the end was First Amendment's important, free speech is important, but schools serve a variety of values in addition to protecting the value of free speech. And I'm, I'm wondering, maybe just to push back a little bit for both of you, speech isn't everything, right? Maybe it's speech first, but, but what comes second? Maybe speech is just one of several values that ought to be kept in mind. I remember decades and decades ago, long before my time, long before any of our times, Bill Buckley wrote a book, God and Man at Yale, where, as the subtitle indicated, he was attacking the, quote, superstition of academic freedom. Buckley argued that, ironically, an argument to alumni, he said alumni needed to do more to convince Yale and other private institutions to take a stronger stand in favor of certain values, push back against what they would have called at the time relativism on campus, that schools really needed to teach not just facts, but also values. And some might say that, that by focusing exclusively or even primarily on free speech, that you're really underselling the role of, of educational institutions in championing particular values. And we might, any of us might disagree with a particular value at any given moment in time. But at the end of the day, it's up to the university to choose which values it's going to pursue and, and to teach those values accordingly. And so in that respect, free speech is, might be good in, in some ways, but it, it, it can't be taken as the end-all be-all in these things. Nikki, what would, what would you say to, to somebody who, who asked you that? Sure. I mean, if somebody wants to send their child to Social Justice University, then God bless and, you know, go do that. But don't do it at a publicly funded institution with taxpayer dollars. 
I think, you know, same thing with K to 12 schools, send your kid to woke country day, but don't do it against my will with my money to my child. And so, I mean, I, I saw John Haidt years ago at a Mount Pelerin give a speech saying that he, he foresaw a coming split in academia where there would be, you know, pursuit of truth university and kind of, you know, woke value university. And I think probably that that day is coming. It's a little bit dark, but if you don't like the rules that are attached to federal funding, which includes, you know, free speech and non-discrimination, then don't take the money, period. Stuart, let me, let's say this. I'm in favor of teaching more civics in America, teaching sort of American history, American values, what really sets America apart from other countries, not just in terms of the facts of its history and, and the structure of its constitution, but the values that those institutions embody. Shouldn't we have more schools in the business of teaching values that otherwise are, are, are lost? And, and isn't the focus on free speech right now? Sure, it's, it's, you're pushing back against, against values that I might disagree with, but I, I don't want schools out of the values business altogether. Well, it kind of depends on how bad the values they're teaching now are. I think they're pretty bad. If you could have, have you read any, any of this stuff about uh, the Dalton School in New York? The place is about to blow apart at the seams because of the values they're teaching are all woke stuff. And so I think one counter I'd put to you, free speech isn't the only thing, obviously, but free speech is in huge danger now. That's never been true in my life, in my adult lifetime. Free speech was always being, you know, bloodied a little bit now and then, but it was basically a widely shared value. Not now. Liberals used to be the champions of free speech and used to be a liberal cause. Not now. Liberals have largely abandoned free speech, not all of them, but the majority of them. And, uh, you know, and the, the harder left they get, the more they abandon it. And the more we're beginning to think, are we going to be, is this going to be like Mao's China? Is it going to be like Soviet Russia? You know, how bad is this going to get? They're not killing people yet, but they're ruining careers. And also in terms of Bethel School District, this is a little side point I'd make, that's, that's high school. And high schools are traditionally given a lot of power to, you know, push their students' values in whatever directions they want to. Hopefully, they're good directions. Colleges, it's been a little different. And I think if William F. Buckley were with us today, he would be on the free speech side of the current argument. Okay, maybe we'll end on a slightly different note then. Let's end on a note of hope. You both created institutions or you're helping to lead institutions precisely because you don't think this is futile. You think there is a hope for success, success of some sorts. What are the signs to you for hope in these things that you're struggling against? Nikki? I'm always impressed when I go out and I meet students who they start student organizations, they table, they hold events, knowing eyes wide open that they might face blowback from their professors. They might not get as good of a grade. They might you know, be ostracized by their peers, but they do it anyway because they believe in the power of their ideas. And I know for every student that's out there actually kind of owning it, there are 10 students that will walk up to them when they're tabling and say, hey, thanks for being here. I agree with you. I'm scared. And so the fact that there is, you know, it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg poking up, but I do think that there is a silent majority of students on campus that that don't like this. They are scared for one reason or another, but there are students that realize it is incumbent on them to kind of be the change they want to be in the world. You know, that to me is, that's cool because I was, when I was in college, I worked at a bar and I was like not interested in politics whatsoever. So. These kids to me are really encouraging. Interesting. Sure. One person told me when I was trying to get a sense of the campus of state of opinion, I was talking to a young conservative students. One of the people who told me 
about how the you know the left completely dominates the political debate on campus and hates free speech. But he also said now about 20% of the students are athletes and about 20% are in the engineering school and none of them care anything about politics. Those are the people <laughs> I'm hoping may wake up to how this threatens them, although it doesn't seem to have started to happen yet. And I, I mentioned the Tevi Troy article. I'm hoping what he describes having happened to the political correctness movement will happen to this movement. What you need probably more than anything is some really good comedians making fun of wokeness. Nikki, in addition to speech on campus, we've talked about a number of other issues. And and as it happens, I, I heard that you just created another organization focused on what's happening in schools. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So we recently publicly launched Parents Defending Education to tackle some of the woke indoctrination issues that we've seen and heard about over the past year in K-12 schools. It struck me that with shutdowns, a lot of parents were suddenly, their eyes were kind of opened as to what their children were learning when schools were in their living rooms. And people were unhappy with that. And so we wanted to give people the tools to first know what their rights are, where the lines are drawn if your kid goes to a public school, what is compelled speech, what is a Title VI violation, a Title IX violation, so that they know when the lines are crossed that there is something you can do about it. And then give them the tools to start to engage on these issues. It shouldn't matter what the letter is next to your name. You should know how to talk to your principal, your teacher, your school board, your superintendent when you have concerns. And if you're not getting the answers you need, what is your recourse beyond that? If you go to a private school, maybe, you know, it's the court of public opinion and starting an anonymous Instagram page. If it's a public school, it could be filing an OCR complaint. It could be filing a FOIA or it could be litigation. So we want to help people with all those, give them the options and really get people more engaged in this process. Because I think, unfortunately, a lot of parents just stop showing up at local government meetings, school board meetings, stuff like that because they've been busy living their lives. But if we care about education, politics goes to he who shows up and it's time to show up. That's really interesting. Where can people go to learn more about this? Sure. The website is defendinged.org. So we have a lot of resources about knowing your rights, as well as a big map on the website called the indoctrination map, where we can people can look up incidents that are around the country that have been either reported in the news or that people have sent in tips to us, as well as local parent groups that have sprung up across the country. So if people are unhappy, then they can find somebody who's near them and get connected to that group. Or if they don't find one near them, they should start their own. Well, again, I'd encourage our listeners to, to take a look at, at your websites, PrincetonianSforFreeSpeech.com and SpeechFirst.org. We've mentioned a few other articles in passing, including Tevi's recent article in National Affairs. Two others I just want to mention in, in passing as we wrap up. One is also it was in National Affairs a couple of years ago by Jonathan Rausch. It's called The Constitution of Knowledge on Ideas, Science, and Knowledge in, in American Culture and American Institutions. That was a great essay that's soon going to become a book. And then Stuart's mentioned earlier about programs like the James Madison Program and other organizations that are on campus or just on the outskirts of campus that try to have their own gravitational pull on debate in campus. There was a really great article I saw just very recently on the website Law and Liberty. It was titled The Offshore Core, as in institutions on, that are offshore of the, of the universities, but that try to teach the core concepts that universities used to teach. That's why James Hankins, historian at Harvard, again, that one's at Law and Liberty. But again, the first thing you should read are, are the websites of my two guests today, Nikki Neely of Speech First and Stuart Taylor of Princetonians for Free Speech. Nikki, Stuart, thanks for joining us today. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. And thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Unprecedential. Unprecedental.